Good morning and uh, happy post-Thanksgiving to you all. I hope you had a great time. It's always a great Sunday, the Sunday after Thanksgiving, because a lot of college students are here and get to see some people that we haven't seen for a while. So welcome home, those of you who are here. Um, for those of you who might be visiting with us this morning, my name's Ken Rutherford. I'm one of the um, lay pastors, one of the elders here at Grace Fellowship. And uh, every so often I get the opportunity to come up and to deliver a, a message. And I am doing a kind of a mini series as the opportunity arises for me to come up and speak. And so we're going to be continuing on that. I've done two prior and I'll do a little bit of review to get you up to speed if you've not heard the first two. But uh, we are in the book of First Peter. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to the book of First Peter... We're going to be continuing our study of the indicative and the imperative. So as a review, man-made religions. When did you consider man-made religions? For millennia, man-made religions have set forth the proposition that what you do determines who you are. It's intuitive. It makes perfect sense. I'll give you some examples. Buddhism. If you meditate, if you are spiritual and you practice spiritual and physical labor, you do good behavior, all of those are the ways that you can achieve enlightenment and get to nirvana. So what you do determines who you are or where you are going. Islam is very similar. If you believe that there is no God beside Allah, and that Muhammad is the messenger of Allah. If you stick to that and you do good deeds and constantly ask Allah for forgiveness, then you will receive Jannah, which is their version of heaven. What you do determines who you are or where you are going. The uh, Church of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons, teach that celestial kingdom will be the residence of those who have been righteous who have accepted the teachings of Jesus Christ as put forth in the Book of Mormon and other documents of theirs, and received and done their best to live up to all of the required ordinances and covenants of the church. What you do determines who you are and where you will go. In all of these examples, the imperative, that is, what you do, precedes or comes before the indicative, that which indicates who you are, or in many cases, where you will go. In his letter to the Christian brothers and sisters, the Apostle Peter turns that paradigm on its head. Instead of what you do determining who you are, Christianity, on the other hand, offers a new and countercultural, even counterintuitive paradigm. Who you are and where you are going determines what you do. That is completely countercultural and in many cases completely counterintuitive. The indicative precedes the imperative. And that's why right out of the gate, Peter opens his letter with listing a number of indicatives of who's you, who you are's, if you will. And it's kind of like an identification card for the reader, and that's why I'm using the graphic of the identification card. The letter is addressed to the elect. It's an indicative describing all believers. 
who are elect, which means that they are chosen. Why would he use the word elect if it's something that they did in order to achieve it? No, we are chosen by the father from among all other people in the world. You are a believer today. If you sit here as a follower of Jesus, as a believer, you're a believer because God chose to give you second birth. God chose to draw you to himself while yet you were still a rebel, still a sinner. You and I were made righteous by the blood of Jesus, by the work of Jesus, by what Jesus did. We are being sanctified and made holy continually, progressively by the power of the Holy Spirit in us. And we are heirs of the king of the universe, adopted into his family, not naturally children of God. We are by nature children of wrath, but instead we are adopted into his family, into the family of the king. And although we don't see him, we love Jesus and we believe in him. We don't see him. It's counterintuitive. If you can't see him, if you don't have evidence like that's solid that you can just really bank on. No, we understand because there's something that's gone on different in our hearts. We don't see him, yet we love him and we recognize him. And we recognize our sinfulness and our sinfulness causes us to mourn unlike other people. And therefore, we rejoice in our salvation, which comes from God and is not generated by ourselves. And Peter writes that this salvation that we experience This redemption that we've experienced, this election, it's the very object of Old Testament prophecy. Everything written in the past points to where we are today. And he even says that angels have forever, and since the beginning of creation, when they were created, angels have looked on in wonder at what God is doing through this process that we call redemption. You wonder why they were singing on that very first Christmas morning. Because they are wondering, what in the world are you doing, God? What a great message. This is who we are. This is the indicative. These are words that indicate who you are. And like any other person who's been given great privilege, who wears a particular name or a title... It comes with great expectation, and that's the imperative. Because you are this, do that. For an example, you're an officer in the military. You're an officer, act like an officer. Don't act like one of the grunts. You're an adult, act like an adult. How many of you have heard that? You're a mom, dress like a mom. You're a dad. Don't dress like a dad. Don't wear cargo shorts. Don't socks with sandals. Don't do that. Seriously. The imperatives of First Peter are wrapped up in two words. Be holy. Be holy. Be different. Be set apart. Be holy. Why? Because the God who chose me is holy. It's what's expected of me. God says, I made you holy when you weren't. And now I want you to reflect my glory in the way you live your life. 
You are holy. Now be holy. And you have to constantly ask yourself why. Why? And this is the thing that breaks down a lot of times when people are pondering Christianity. When I do holy things, when I obey God, when I, when I love the unlovable, when I serve people, does that somehow obligate God to turn away his wrath from me? Do I earn credit or merit with God that he applies to my account? So every time I do bad, it kind of goes down. But then when I do good, it comes back up. Is that how it works? No. Jesus has done everything necessary to turn away God's wrath from you forever, period. It's done. It is done. He has earned all of the merit Necessary on your behalf. There's no amount of merit that you can earn. You were made holy by the choosing of God the Father, by the blood of God the Son, and the power of God the Holy Spirit. Why? So that people will give me glory? Show me admiration for how religious I am? No. The Pharisees of Jesus' time and the Pharisees of today would feast on that kind of glory. Yes, give me glory. Look how religious I am. But what does Jesus call them? They're hypocrites. And that's what you and I are if that's our mentality. That we achieve something, that we gain merit through our behavior. God has done everything necessary to turn away his wrath on your behalf. You are holy Not as a way to become something that is acceptable to God, but you are holy because God is holy. The reason we are chosen by God is so that God will receive the credit by your supernatural ability to humbly live counter-culturally, counter-intuitively, to live with the indicative Before the imperative. It is so that God will receive the credit when you patiently endure suffering. And it is so that God will receive the credit when you love one another without hypocrisy. Even when you don't feel like loving one another. You have everything you need to make this happen. You have everything necessary. You have God the Father, you have God the Son, and you have God the Holy Spirit. You are holy, so be holy. Which brings us to chapter 2. In chapter 2, Peter continues with a cycle of imperatives followed by indicatives. Imperatives followed by indicatives. Chapter 2, verse 1. The imperative is, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Why? In order to be made righteous? You do this in order to be made righteous? Of course not. No. The indicative is because you have been made righteous. Chapter 2, verse 4. You are chosen by God and precious to him. You see, anytime he says, this is what you should do, he's going to come right back around and say, and this is why. Excuse me. And this is why. It's because of who you are. It's because of who you are. You are being built into a spiritual house 
to be a holy priesthood. And what does the priesthood do? They offer sacrifices, right? We, as believers, offer spiritual sacrifices. We did that this morning in our, sing- in our singing. We offer the sacrifices of praise. We do that through our lives, the, the sacrifice of obedience. When you offer your body as a living sacrifice, according to Romans 12, 1, through the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus. He empowers you to do that. It's because of who you are that enables you to do what you do. When we deny the sinful nature, our natural predilections, and we rejoice in our salvation, when we delight in being holy, when we love one another in a supernatural way, that way we are offering our bodies as a living sacrifice. That's your job as a priest of God in the temple of God. So you're a priest. The indicative, chapter 2, verse 9, you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. That's who you are. And therefore, then the imperative, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Why did he make you these things? So that you could declare his praises. 2.11, he reminds us, dear friends, I urge you, With another indicative, as foreigners and exiles, to do what? To another imperative, abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against your soul. He says, this is who you are. You're a foreigner. You're an exile. You're foreigners and exiles in this culture. But we are not at war with the culture. Our war is with our sinful desires. We... Have to live such good lives, verse 12, among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So what does that mean? Well, some will only glorify God when on that last day when he comes and visits us in final judgment, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. That may be it for some, but others in God's way, in God's sovereignty, By seeing your good deeds and your trust in God amidst suffering will want to know how you can have hope and joy when all hell is breaking loose. How can you do that? And this sets the stage today for our lesson, which is found in the next five verses, verses 13 through 17. uh, First Peter chapter two, verses 13 through 17. And I've entitled it for God's sake, submit to authority. Unless you think I'm using the Lord's name in vain just there, hear the word of the Lord from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, You should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. So these verses begin an entire section of the letter devoted to practical examples of how to fulfill The imperative, those two words, be holy. And he's going to go on and on and on. And so, Lord willing, I will be have an opportunity next week to speak to you. But in subsequent months, 
going forward, we'll continue to look at some of these imperatives of what Peter, how he paints the picture of what it looks like to be holy. The late English biblical scholar Alan Stibbs says in his commentator, his commentary on First Peter, his commentator on First Peter, <laughs> that was great, his commentary on First Peter, quote, Christians should acknowledge the sovereignty of God in ordering the overruling human institutions and relations for men's good. What is he saying here? He's saying, you need to recognize that God put this all in place. The way, therefore, to please God is for Christians not to be rebels against the prevailing order of society, but rather positively, submissively, and dutifully to discharge the various responsibilities which the common relations of life put upon them. Submit yourselves to every human authority. Human authority literally means the foundations of human society. Peter writes this with the assumption that the people who are hearing, that the people who are reading, accept that all human society is ordered by God. Now, this is a tough concept. We kind of pass over this and just sort of accept it. But it's a, it's a really a tough concept. You see, in God's common grace, he has established institutions among people to maintain order, peace, and justice. Order, peace, and justice. I'm sure there's more. I mean, what Grudem wrote a book about that thick on politics. There's a whole lot more going on here, but I want to boil it down to order, peace, and justice. That's what God is interested in. The family, the church, educational institutions, business organizations, and the state. Those are all ordained and established by God for the good of mankind. Despite our fallen natures, there is a common recognition among people of every culture across every century of mankind that groups of humans only thrive when there is what? Order, peace, and justice. Order, peace, and justice. Unbelievers recognize that. And they organize themselves in order to bring about those things. And it's not some random product of natural selection and Darwinian evolution. It's the very fingerprint of God on mankind. Man whose very nature is, and man, God whose very nature and man in his image, God's very nature is order as seen in creation, peace as seen in redemption, and justice as seen in judgment. Order, peace, and judgment. And justice. And that's why Paul proclaims in Romans 13, verses 1 through 4, in kind of a parallel passage, Paul says, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities. And he's not talking just government authority. He's talking about Governing authorities over any situation, not just government, but governing authorities. The authorities that exist have been established by God. He says it again. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. 
For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from the fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servant, servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. I say this, and please don't get me wrong. Please don't come up to me. I'm sticking my neck out here. Even some of the most notorious dictators in history at least get credit for keeping the trains running on time. Okay? Because at the most basic level, governments exist to maintain what? Order, peace, and justice in people's everyday lives. And of course, this immediately raises the question about human institutions that persecute Christianity or actively promote injustice or wickedness. Paul says there in Romans 13 verse 3, going back there, For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Well, I can tell you there have been governments and there have been authorities that reward evil and punish good. That does happen. Edwin Bloom says, and I think he's right, and I think history proves this to be true. No government or governing authority that consistently rewards evil and punishes good will long survive. No government that consistently rewards evil and punishes good will long survive. And I think history does in fact indicate that that is the case. Peter here is not referring to the exceptions. That tends to be where we always go. He's not referring to the exceptions because he will cover that later in the letter. At this point, therefore, and Paul in the same ends that we hate authority. What does he mean by the He could be saying that when we give our submission to God's divinely ordained human authorities, we demonstrate our submission to God who ordained them. So it, what we're doing is saying basically we are obeying and submitting to the government for the sake of our commitment to God. Another option is that because Jesus submitted to human authority, we should therefore follow his example since Jesus's submission brought about the glory and purposes of God. So you could say for the sake of the Lord's mission to glorify the father through suffering or a third option or perhaps a, uh, a little synergy of all of them. Our submission to human authority silences the Lord's critics who might see his followers as outsiders or anarchists since we do in fact claim a higher power. For the, Therefore, what you're saying is that we obey, we submit for the sake of the Lord's purposes to silence his critics, to silence any criticism of what you are doing and who you are. Although all three are valid, I think that third option of silencing his critics better fits the overall theme of this section. I think there's truth in the others as well, but I think he's really going here. That we are to live as foreigners and exiles in this world. We are to live 
in the world, not what? Of the world. That's, that's absolutely true. We're also to live in the world and not disengaged from the world. Okay? In the world, not of the world. In the world, not disengaged from the world. Where do you go? That's the art of this whole thing. And that's why Peter is addressing these people and saying, you must live holy. You must be holy. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, he will enable you to live through this. And you know what? When you do that, you're going to face criticism. You're going to face persecution. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to fail here and there. But what you don't want to do is give the enemy a foothold to bring criticism against the church, against God, against you. Of all the human authorities instituted by God, Peter chooses first, and he will hit others later as we move on through chapter 2. Peter chooses to focus initially on the emperor or the king as supreme authority. And then following that on governors as those who enforce the will of the emperor. Now, of course, we always, our minds go to how does this apply to us today in the 21st century? What would be the equivalent to the Roman emperor or the king in the 21st century United States of America? How many of you all think the president? No, sorry. (laughs) Actually, going all the way back, and this is why I will be an apologist for the American Revolution, and we can talk about that, and I know I'm sticking my neck out on that with some of you. Actually, going all the way back to the 13th century England, our form of government recognizes rule of law as opposed to rule of king. Therefore, the best equivalent to emperor in our day in 21st century United States is what? It's the Constitution of the United States. Or the constitution of the state of Georgia. Or whatever municipality you happen to be living in. And the best equivalent to governors would be the executive branches of government. At the top, it's the president. Moving down to governor, county commission, mayor, etc. Whose duty it is to enforce those laws. And so you and I, if you're a citizen of the United States, we are citizens of a representative republic. We have the right, and I think the duty, to elect executives who will uphold the Constitution and representatives who will amend the Constitution as necessary to maintain what? Order, peace, and justice. You cannot disengage. You can't go, oh, they're all rascals, so I'm not even going to be a part of it. You have a duty to be engaged in this government. In the authority system that we have, you've been given a gift of Lex Rex and you need to maintain it. When we look at the corruption and the lies coming from people in authority, our knee jerk reaction might be at best to hold them all in contempt, throw them all out and at worst to either rebel or just to disengage altogether. And I get it. Things are pretty bad right now. I get it. But if you think our government officials are corrupt and immoral today, consider one Nero Claudius Caesar Augustus Germanicus, the glorious emperor of Rome from A.D. 54 to A.D. 68. And since the letter of 1 Peter was written somewhere between A.D. 62 and 64, this would have made Nero the emperor to whom Peter is referring in this passage. And this makes Peter's imperative all the more shocking when you consider the following. Nero's mother, 
a widow with political connections, married the emperor Claudius, who just happened to be her father's brother, when her son Nero was 12 years old. She pressured her new husband to to adopt Nero as his own son and to favor him as his successor over Claudius' own son. At 16 years of age, Nero married the daughter of his adoptive father, his stepsister. And one year later, after Claudius died from being poisoned by his wife, Nero's mother, Nero became emperor at the tender age of 17. Politically, Nero was famous for extravagant public spending and heavily taxing the rich to pay for it. There's nothing new under the sun. He was famous for eliminating his political rivals by assassination, including his out-of-favor former advisors, as well as his own stepbrother, the one that wasn't supposed to get the kingship. Personally, he carried on a series of sexual affairs, and when his mother disapproved because they were not politically expedient, there was some liability for him to do that, he had her murdered and claimed her death as a suicide. He divorced his wife and then had her executed on false charges of adultery. He blamed the great fire that destroyed a significant portion of Rome on this mysterious sect of Jews known as Christians as a means of deflecting criticism that he had been negligent in his duties, which he certainly was. And this was followed by a period of bloody persecution directed at Christians in which hundreds and hundreds, perhaps more, were violently murdered. In a fit of anger, he murdered his pregnant wife, But out of regret for her death, he married a young teenager who resembled her, whom he had surgically transgendered for the occasion, if you know what I mean. Nero finally died a violent death at the ripe old age of 31. Peter is telling his readers, submit yourselves to this murderous amoral pederast as the supreme authority. Whoa. Think about that for a minute. What's your gut reaction? What's your gut reaction? This may give you a clue as to the problem Peter's addressing. He doesn't just throw this out here as a platitude. These people are looking at this guy and going, "Uh uh-uh, that's nasty. Across the Roman Empire, but primarily in Judea, there was a growing political movement among Jewish people. They called themselves the Zealots. It's not the same as Simon the Zealot. Simon was called the Zealot because he was zealous for the faith. These were a party of Zealots. And their zealotry went beyond just being zealous for the faith. Their goal was to use terrorist tactics against the Roman authorities and any fellow Jews who collaborated with them. Their belief was that God was going to establish the Messianic kingdom through their efforts, no matter how violent, no matter how immoral. Their understanding of the Messianic kingdom was, of course, misinformed. They believed it to be a political kingdom where Jews would subdue the nations by force. As God's chosen people, they viewed themselves as free men. We owe no allegiance or submission to Rome and the Roman government 
and the Roman citizens across the empire viewed the zealots and all Jews by association as a threat to civilized society. And since Christianity was ignorantly understood by the Romans as just another sect of the Jews, Christians were looked on as a threat as well. And it didn't help matters that many of the Jewish Christians had similar beliefs as the zealots. We're free in Christ. We owe no allegiance or submission to Rome. Peter even referred to believers as foreigners and exiles, right? They would say, well, as a foreigner, I'm not a subject of Rome, especially that immoral rascal Nero. I don't have to follow him. And the unbelievers, the good Roman citizens who knew no different, were starting to talk. We're starting to talk about the Christians. And what is Peter's response to this talk? Look at verse 15. He says, for it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Foolish people. Foolish people speaking ignorantly. Well, what is what are foolish people? <clears throat> Paul uses this word to describe people who have no knowledge of God. He's not talking about people that we would consider crazy or foolish in, in the vernacular sense. He's talking about people who deny the existence of God. Psalm 14.1 and 53.1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. It's foolish to believe that there is no God. And Peter is saying that these people who do not understand God or don't know the real God or don't believe in God at all are acting foolishly. And they're, they're, they're speaking ignorantly out of their foolishness, out of their unbelief. It's, this is a person whose ideas and opinions are derived from an outright denial of the existence of God or from an embrace of a false man-centered version of God. Who is that describing? Just about everybody. They have no understanding about the true God. Since they don't understand the things of God, when these fools talk about God or his followers, they speak from what they do understand. How many of you watched movies by unbelievers and they try to portray the beliefs of Christianity and they mangle them every time? They don't understand. They don't have an idea. They're ignorant because of their foolishness of denying the very existence of God. The Bible contains two really clear examples of ignorant things said by foolish people, probably from an era beforehand, um, especially definitely in in John 19, 12, um, when Jesus was standing before Pilate in judgment prior to the crucifixion, It says, from then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you're no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. Wait a minute. What was their supposed king? Supposed to be God. Acts 19, 26 and 27 Paul had been in Ephesus proclaiming the gospel and many people were turning away from their idols, especially one to Diana or Artemis, who was the the, um, statue that was in the great temple. And this was a means of income for a lot of people. And as they were being turned away from this, some people started realizing, hey, wait a minute, this is not good. Acts 19 verses 26 and 27 
It is said, quote, this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are not gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. And I say, Amen. But he's speaking like that's a bad thing. And I think like that's a good thing. And you see where we are? We're on two different places. And so therefore, in Peter's day... There was a similar ignorant things being said. There were similar ignorant things being said about God and his people. For example, it's it, uh, through history, it's been taught that <clears throat> many people in that time believed that Christians were atheist cannibals who practiced incest. Atheist cannibals who practiced incest. What? How do you get that? Well, they don't believe the emperor was God, so they're atheists. They regularly eat the body and drink the blood of Jesus, so they're cannibals. And they marry their brothers or they marry their sisters. They're incestuous. And within a few years, these ignorant beliefs would spawn full-on persecution, costing many believers to face execution for their faith. And I believe this is likely what Peter was anticipating when he wrote these words. In our day, there are equally ignorant things being said by foolish people who have no knowledge of God. For example... Quote, I wrote this, so I'm going to say quote. Since there is no God, and because Christianity denies materialistic theories of the origin of life, Christian is anti, Christianity is anti-science. Christianity is anti-science. Since there is no God to establish absolute moral standards of sexual behavior, Christianity is bigoted and homophobic in its condemnation of homosexuality and transgenderism. You're bigots. You're homophobic. You use hate speech. There may be a day when me standing up and saying these things could get me tossed in prison. Since there is no God, societal power should be distributed equally among males and females. Christianity promotes the patriarchy with its father in heaven, its male leadership in the church, and teachings on female submission in marriage. It's hate speech. It's the patriarchy. And it seems like this kind of talk is everywhere. Perhaps as it was in Peter's time, it's the precursor to something worse. The precursor to persecution. And if that's the case, what is our duty? How do you deal with that? Peter says, as he did to his people, by doing good. By doing good. Sounds counterintuitive. Sounds simplistic. But Peter elaborates in verses 16 and 17. He says, live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover up for evil. Live as God's slaves. We are free. Yeah, we are free from the bondage of sin, Satan and selfish desires. And that freedom enables us to serve God as he would have us serve him. Romans 6, verses 17 and 18. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. In other words, free is what you are. It's the indicative. You are free. Enslaving yourselves 
to righteousness is what you do because of that freedom. That's the imperative. And what does a slave to righteousness look like? To Peter, it looks like a good citizen. A good citizen. Submitting to the governing authorities as they dispense the everyday, everyday basic administration of order, peace, and justice. And not only submission, but according to verse 17, we're to show proper respect to authority and to those in authority. And here's where I'm guilty. I used to say this all the time. Government is a necessary evil. That is false. Government is not a necessary evil any more than the family is a necessary evil. Government and authorities like the family are ordained by God for our good. And when we submit to authority, we accomplish several things. We give no just cause for ignorant fools to see us as zealots. That's a big deal. We commend to unbelievers the life of Jesus who is blameless yet unjustly persecuted. And we demonstrate the righteousness of God. When we denigrate authority, whether it's governmental authority or any type of authority, we denigrate God. We denigrate God. And finally, even if it doesn't silence the critics, we please God. Not as a means to earn righteousness, but because we have been made righteous. And that's what righteous people do. I'd like to invite the band to come on back up. That's what righteous people do. Which brings us back to the theme of the entire letter. The indicative indicates who you are and the imperative which shows what you do or tells what you do the indicative you and I are a chosen people a royal priesthood a holy nation God's special possession and the imperative that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness Into his wonderful light. That's why God chose you. That's why God saved you. And this is why God put his seal of the Holy Spirit in your heart. So that you would declare his praises. Finally look at verse 17 again. Peter says. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor God. The emperor. When we do this by showing proper respect to everyone, by loving the family of believers, by actively and openly fearing God, and even when it's disgusting, honoring the emperor, we are showing the glory of God and bringing him the credit and the righteousness. Amen. Thank you very much.